Thomas Worthland McConkie, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Hi, Bill Rill. I'm doing well. Excellent. Glad to have you on and grateful for this chance to talk. Uh, folks probably don't know this, but you and I have spent several occasions together in the last year and in group settings with other folks and, and just where you facilitated some really interesting discussions. And I've, I've just really been grateful to have the chance to get to know you, Thomas, and, and just grateful for the chance to have you back on the podcast and to talk about some things that, that have been on my mind as I've heard you speak before and, and just looking forward to the chance for you and I to kind of talk together. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, so happy to be here with you today. I uh, I don't know that you really need an introduction. I think people are are figuring out in, in Mormonism if they're if they're into these conversations and they're wrestling with tough issues, they know who Thomas Worthland McConkey is. But maybe for the one guy or gal who's listening right now who who just doesn't you know doesn't know who you are, maybe just share a little bit of a brief bio about yourself. Well, really briefly, as the name suggests, I grew up in a Mormon family. I grew up in the Mormon church, and uh, it didn't work out for me. I, I, I didn't connect with Mormonism. Um, I've, I ended up leaving the church, or, you know, I, I went, quote, inactive and stopped going to my meetings at age 13. And I was still spiritually voracious. I've always been a seeker at heart, and I, I knew there were mysteries to be probed. Um, that led me down a particular path. I've, I've been really interested in contemplation and meditation and uh, the spiritual insight that that can give to us as a life practice and also adult development. I mean, meditation and adult development have been kind of my two primary practices and modalities uh, for almost 20 years now, and I just love to share them with people because of the the potential that it unlocks in fellow seekers. So, Thomas, I know, like you've written this book, and I and I hope all Latter Day Saints who are, you know, swimming in these waters are aware of it. Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, wonderful book. It it essentially kind of breaks down these these stages where this tension is. As, as Latter-day Saints are kind of realizing or waking up one day and realizing that things just don't quite fit the way they used to. And, and you're facilitating a conversation from these, these earlier stages to these later stages. They're beautiful. And I know you get these stages from integral theory. It's something you've spent your life, um, delving into and kind of, kind of swimming in. And in integral theory, they've got these stages of like the impulsive, the opportunist, the diplomat, the expert, the achiever. The individualist, the strategist, and the magician to the ironist, a ton of stages. I know you focus a lot on those middle ones where this, there tends to be this real tension, uh, within the church right now. And I want to talk to you a little bit about some of these stages specifically. And the whole purpose of having you on, as I'm rambling here, but the whole purpose to have you on is I know that listeners are struggling and they're hurting and they're, they're trying to navigate how they stay and what that looks like. And, and, there's there's this curiosity of like where I'm at now and what does it look like a year from now? What does it look like five years from now? What does it look like ten years from now? And I think when when you paint the picture of this development, it helps us all kind of get grounded in in where we're at and what's going on. And it, it kind of gives insight on like what lays ahead and, and what can I look out for and and I'll tell you, having spent time with you, like I'm beginning to notice like certain practices that bring me into uh, awareness of kind of the next step ahead and kind of working into that. And it also allows me to have compassion for what, what is kind of um, behind me in my experience. And, 
and I say all that to kind of jump into some of these questions, which is for, for me, I'm looking at the diplomat and the expert. And I know you have these parsed out as these two unique, um, stages where we're at in our development. But I, I struggle sometimes kind of like saying this is diplomat stage and this is expert stage. Start us off maybe talking about the contrast between the diplomat and the expert, how they act differently, and maybe like what their church experience looks like. Thanks for those prefatory remarks. One thing I want to say before we jump into the stages is, you know, also addressing uh, your podcast listeners that uh, growing, developing, shifting stages is often painful, right? And I think an issue in the Mormon church right now, not just the Mormon church, an issue with humanity, (laughs) an issue with the modern world is that we're starting, we seem to be moving into new stages that we haven't inhabited in big numbers before. So there isn't necessarily a parent or a, you know, a loving aunt or uncle that's there to normalize your pain and say, oh, they're there, you know, you're, um, you're struggling with this. That's just a really normal part of growing up, right? Like I remember when I was young and I went through, you know, a period where my, my shins really hurt, my lower legs hurt because I was growing. And, you know, my parents said, oh, that's what happened. Those are literally, those are growing pains and, you know, they'll go away after a while. That just means you're growing. You're going to get bigger and taller. That's great news. Um, I, I offer this whole conversation, you know, today, with you on Mormon discussions and the, the larger conversation in Mormonism in that spirit that if, if you're listening to this podcast and if you feel pain in your relationship with the Mormon church, I would suggest that those might be growing pains. And if you can find community, if you can find peers, uh, you know, that can support you and reflect back to this changing, this change process you're engaged in, really it's, such incredible news, like what we're becoming and what's ahead of us as individuals, as a faith community. And, you know, for those who, you know, don't find their fit with Mormonism, just the the adventure of humanity is really quite powerful. So I, I love this topic, and I, I just wanted to kind of uh, create the container for it that way, if that's all right, Bill. Gorgeous. Gorgeous, Thomas. Cool. All right. So you asked about diplomat, right? Should I jump into that? Yeah, diplomat, I mean... Diplomat in the expert, like what the differences are and, and what their church experience looks like so we can get a feel for like what the tension is between those two stages. Yeah, totally. Well, first I'll say diplomat, uh, not every developmental researcher uses that term. Uh, a, a more common term I hear more often amongst my peers and colleagues is conformist. And I, I originally used that term in my book, conformist, because it's the more widely used term in development. But you can see right away, you know, the connotations of calling a particular stage a conformist, especially in the context of Mormonism. Um, people don't generally like to be called a conformist, especially in American culture. But I, I share that term with you to give you a sense of, okay, the diplomat stage, the conformist stage, they point to a time in our life where 
we draw our identity by orienting to a collective. Like we're really concerned with fitting in and looking like other people in our group and talking like them and acting like them. And, you know, if my next door neighbor bought a new car, well, then I'm going to talk to my wife about, well, we should, we should own a new car. And, you know, like we're really tied to that um, world of appearances. That's, that's one of the hallmarks of the conformist stage. Gotcha. I, it feels to what you're hitting on, there's a deep sense of ethnocentricity there, right? There's a deep sense of, of an ethnocentric viewpoint at this diplomat stage. Yeah. And I mean, if I understand you by ethnocentric, that's a, that's a term we use sometimes as well. It means that everything I just said, we're, we're really tuned into the group that we belong to and we know how we look and we know how we dress and how we talk and walk. Um, and therefore we know who doesn't walk this way and talk this way and look this way. So anybody who doesn't in a concrete way, you know, that you can gauge just by looking at their physical appearance, you can tell that they don't fit in. They're not a part of us. So th- there's quite a strong us versus them dynamic that comes up at this stage. That's just, that's a reality of consciousness you know, at this stage of development. And uh, anytime we talk about a stage, uh, one of the biggest pitfalls of working with development is to jump into all of the negative attributes of a particular stage. And then we get to the latest stage and whatever model we're using and talk about all of its positive attributes. And so that's the stage we all want to grow into. And I, I just want to like really do this early in the conversation, Bill, that the conformist stage, um, we could say that one of its pitfalls is that it, it struggles to include people that uh, aren't with aren't in the in group. Like we don't recognize them as part of our group, so it's hard for us to really be kind and compassionate. Um, we we have ways of doing that, but um, the the benefit. I mean, they're really powerful positive attributes to this stage. Um, you know, this think about if you're really close with your family. That feeling you get, um, or if it's not your entire family, maybe, maybe a sibling or, you know, a group of siblings, or if you're not close with your siblings, then close friends, you know, that you've been friends with for years and years. And that feeling you get when you, you know, make plans to like go away for the weekend or, you know, go have dinner together and you're just in it and you're laughing at the same things and you share similar memories and, uh, you just fit in. And it feels good to belong like that's kind of that's the positive side of the what, you know, we call the diplomat stage is that there, we develop a powerful sense of belonging and a powerful uh, set of values and so forth. So that that's all going on, you know, the stage that, you know, as we talk about it, you can start to sense into how we see this in Mormonism. Right. The need to fit in the the us, the Latter day Saints and the. Everyone else who's not Latter-day Saint and the, the genuine drive towards like trying to include people. And at the conformist stage, that tends to happen through, well, let's let's baptize them. Let's invite them to be members. Um, but the rub is it can be challenging to just let somebody um, be a Catholic or be a Buddhist or be a, you know, be a Shinto priest, whatever it is. It can be challenging to just let that lie. <laughs> and not tell them about the Book of Mormon. You know, that, that's, that's hard at conformist. It's, it's almost like how we love people, right? Like if the way I show, if I'm a diplomat, the way I show my love is by trying to bring you into my group. 
Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's really fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And if you go back a couple thousand years when you know, historians talk about the axial period, that's when all of these major world religions were kind of sprouting up, uh, you know, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, several hundred years after that. Really, from a certain perspective, these were these were institutions that were trying to invite more and more people into them because at the tribal level, we're just going to kill each other. Every time we bump into each other and, you know, want to defend the same patch of land, we're going to just kill each other. But if we're all if we're all Muslims, if we're all Christians, it's this higher order organizing principle that says, oh, well, even though, you know, you're not from my bloodline, we're both Christian. Right. So, I mean, this conformist stage, what we tend to focus on as a problem nowadays, there was a time on this very planet not too long ago where this very stage of development saved humanity, right? So it's interesting to look at the stages that way, just the gifts they bring. And, you know, they all have built-in limitations that we have to work with as well. Gotcha. Where does the diplomat, like who are, who are the diplomats authorities and, and, and how does the diplomat see authority? Yeah. At the diplomat level, Authority, I would say, is more or less unquestioned. Authority comes with a role, meaning like let's use a let's use an example from the United States government. If you're president of the United States, a, a, a true diplomat on January 20th, they don't care if Donald Trump is a true conservative, if he is morally fit for the office. They care that he occupies the office of presidency. If you are president of the United States, then you are president and you are in charge and you are worthy of all the respect that comes from that station. Right. So I would say in the diplomat logic and that whole world and that worldview, your leaders, the people you look up to and take marching order from marching orders from, they're the people who are hierarchically above you. Right. It's not about who the individual is. That comes later. That comes at the expert and achiever stages where you want to know the content of a person's character. At the uh, diplomat stage, it's all about what is your position in the hierarchy? Do you have authority? Right? And, and so the diplomat would, it would be a negative thing to them to have somebody question that authority or to suggest that they have an idea that's actually more right than what the authority's idea is. I'm so glad you point that out. Absolutely. You know, for like <laughs> the podcasting crowd in Mormonism, like ourselves, uh, we like to bandy ideas around and talk about like, you know, church history and philosophy, epistemology, development, all this stuff. And you're quite right that at a certain level, at a, during a certain orientation towards Mormonism uh, or within that orientation, we not only don't want to hear about that, we don't care, but we find it dangerous because it didn't come from within the institution itself. So it must be them. It must be other. And I mean, we my personal approach to that is that uh, we all have our particular relationship to not just Mormonism, but the meaning of human life. And nobody likes some jerk to come along and say like, oh, you know, you think Santa Claus exists? Well, he doesn't, idiot. 
right? And development, <laughs> developmentally, we all run the risk of doing that to someone else, saying that, oh, you think that's how the world works? You think that's what the church, you think the church is true? Well, I got news. I mean, you and me, Bill, we're sitting here talking about development, but we both have our own developmental schema. We both see the world developmentally as well. And there's someone just down the street from us more developed than us that could come along and say, oh, you still think that it's all about social power and context or you. Oh, you still think it's about fill in the blank. And all I'm doing, I'm, I'm emphasizing the the moral imperative to really be gentle with people's orientations towards how they make meaning, how they make sense of the world. It's it's quite a delicate thing, the way we all do this dance. And why well, I love development, uh, it, development probably more than any other practice on the planet has taught me how to tread lightly with people, to like r- really unclasp my sandals and be worthy to walk on the sacred ground of who they are and what their world means to them. Just, just doing that practice over the years, I've, I've felt really blessed by, you know, the opportunity to love people that way. And it's, you know, I've got a long way to go in that practice myself. But I think development can help us do that. Yeah, I hear that. And I, and I'm touched by that. Like, like I can go to church now and I can begin to see folks that I can say, like, generally speaking, they're displaying a diplomat behavior right now. And, and I realize the safety they, they take from feeling like all the answers are provided by their authorities, right? That, that when the authorities have lined out this whole paradigm, they have such comfort in knowing all the answers are there. And for any kind of question to arise where someone doesn't have the answer that points back to the authorities and what they've said, that provides instability for them and and like you're pointing to it would be it would be inappropriate for us to walk into a Sunday school class and to you know find somebody who's in the diplomat stage or displaying diplomat behavior and like pull the rug out from under them yeah totally that that's exactly what I'm pointing to and just let's complicate things a little bit now because we're getting warmed up in our conversation on adult development and integral theory but um Really, the age range for diplomat, for conformist, whatever we want to call it, uh, people really, when, when healthy adults start to move into late adolescence, I would say, even early adolescence, they'll start to peek into the next stage. They're starting to develop, at least cognitively, certainly, they're starting to develop the rational characteristics that are associated with uh, the later stages. It's just to say that like in a given ward, in a given meeting house, a given Sunday school, there is probably not a single diplomat in the group. Although what you said is really significant, Bill, there are certainly people in there with uh, more pronounced diplomat qualities than other people, right? We all have this this developmental bandwidth within us. We've all been diplomats we've we've grown likely if we're you know in this conversation right now listening we've grown through that particular stage and we've integrated it into a later stage um you know where we're you know currently kind of making meaning from but it's it's important to note that like a lot of people a, a, a dismaying number of people came to me after after i wrote the book and they're like oh this person in my life they're such a diplomat and uh really d- diplomat is it's 
almost like a late stage of childhood. I, I, it, I included it in my book on adult development and Mormonism because we do see a little over 10% of adults kind of remain in that stage throughout adulthood. And, you know, really, at the end of the day, the diplomat stage is a beautiful one, and it's very functional, and diplomats can and do do very beautiful things in the world. So it, it's it's a tough practice, but to notice our own anxieties around the diplomat qualities, it's important that we do it rather than kind of like you said, pull the rug out from underneath people and hurry them along in their stage development to, you know, just appreciate that some people do make a station of that particular stage. I, I appreciate that. Like, and I was trying, I was intentionally saying it that way that, yeah, there may be some diplomats, but also you just see a lot of diplomat behavior. So we've talked about the diplomat. We've set that kind of stage up. We've, yeah. we've recognized that some of those behaviors are still found within within a you know any given ward. Um, walk us through the expert. Like, what's the expert look like? And I'm curious specifically, like, what has changed that somebody has become a diplomat to an expert? Um, in other words, what is now different about them? Yeah, great question. So, in the expert stage, and this is this is the stage that. Uh, it, you know, where I work at Pacific Integral, we we regard this as the beginning of adulthood proper. I mean, the the expert stage and the three stages that follow, these are really the the domain of the adult, right? Um, the big difference that comes to mind is that we're really working with a rational mind now. We're we're differentiating from the group from the tribe where we previously drew all of our identity just because I belong to this group. That's, I mean, that is who I am. That's where I'm from. That's how I draw my identity. Uh, at the expert stage, we start to look inward, right? We start to develop a, a subtle ego, a personality in the subtle sense that I have values. I have ideas that are, I didn't get them from my group. In fact, if my group knew I had them, they would probably be concerned, right? So there's a, there's a real differentiation that occurs at the expert stage. And rather than just taking things on faith, like this is how it is, because this is how it is. I mean, the, the diplomat stage, it's concrete and everything in front of us is just, this is what it is. This is how life is. This is what we do at the expert stage. Because we are developing a rational mind and therefore the capacity to imagine, we can start to imagine how things might be if they weren't like this. It's, it's difficult to describe, but, um, you know, what it amounts to is that we can actually, for the first time at the expert uh, level, we can actually turn around and reject the very culture that brought us forth and educated us. We can we can ask questions and probe into like, why do we say this is true? I don't know if it's true. And that diplomats classically don't do that and can't do that. But an expert can really starts to ask why in a very natural way. Are, Are they trying? I mean, is it like this moment where you're now willing to kind of see what are the nuts and bolts behind the scenes that make all these things go together the way they do? Even more than willing, it's capable. I mean, for all we know, diplomats are willing to do that. They just don't yet have the cognitive complexity to start to rationally pick apart 
let's say the story of Mormonism, like, okay, there's this boy and he's in upstate New York and, uh, his, you know, his parents are poor farmers and the people in this area in the 1800s are obsessed with religion and, da, da. you know, like a diplomat won't pick through the narrative that way and ask if it makes sense. Whereas that's exactly what an expert will do. They'll, they'll start to reason it out and they'll say, does this add up? Right. And what <laughs> you might be thinking this, if you're listening to the conversation right now, you probably have personal experience with this or, you know, somebody who's, you know, in the expert stage or has been. And and they can go either way on the church. They can say, like, oh, I've thought this through and it's definitely true or I've thought this through and it's definitely not. So it's an interesting thing that, you know, a stage, you know, doesn't predict like if somebody's going to accept the Mormon church and the restoration, uh, they'll, they'll make different meaning out of the Mormon church. But the yes or no question, that seems to always be alive. Whatever stage we're talking about throughout adulthood, there seems to be this choice point where it's like, you know, yes, I accept it. This is meaningful to me. I love it. Or no, I do not accept it, uh, etc. So that's an interesting little aside there. So, so yeah, it's not like, there's this uniform conclusion that folks always come to within this stage that there's right. still room for, for people to disagree on the end conclusion. Yes. Um, I, I'm curious, like in the Sunday experience, you sit in the three hour block and, and it, it feels like, and I want to get into this later, but it feels like often there's this tension and I'm sure it's also with the stage in front of you, but there's this tension with the, with any behaviors in the stage behind you. And I, I feel like sometimes that tension is actually the catalyst to, to nudge you towards the next stage. Yeah. Do you, are you aware of like what the tension is between the diplomat and the expert? Like if you went to church and you're in the expert stage, what are some of the things that are going on in church that are bothering you or that you're trying to wrestle with, or you feel like something has to get done here? Yeah. I love that question. Um, it, it points to a broader conversation about the, some people have called them developmental allergies, but this feeling we get like, oh, I can't believe those people are like that. It drives me crazy, right? And if we're talking about expert and diplomat, uh, classically the expert will, or the diplomat will drive the expert crazy because the expert sees the, the diplomat and says like, you're just a blind follower, right? Like you just do whatever they tell you to do and you don't think about anything. And from the diplomat's point of view, like belonging, just fully participating in things as they are, it's a, it's a profound sense of joy and fulfillment. Like there's nothing to question. Um, but the expert who's kind of exercising this new capacity to rationally step through the, the experience of belonging, it feels like Kind of like a sacrifice of integrity. If I don't ask these questions, if I don't probe, then I can't live with myself. I have to ask, right? So that would be a classical rub that comes up from the expert stage between the expert and the diplomat. And certainly uh, people will move on. The, I think the listeners will relate to this, but people will move on from the expert stage and they will still feel that rub with the diplomat. I mean, you can feel the rub with the diplomat. 10 stages later. It's not like it just goes away, but I, I think you do need to smooth that transition adequately so as to be able to move on or, or hopefully we're able to do that, if that makes sense. 
it does. And, and I'm always caught by this idea that whatever stage you're in, it feels at least for a time like you've arrived. Like, like, oh, this is where I end up at. This is oh, how man. you end thinking of these <laughs> things, right? And I, and as I'm thinking of the diplomat and the expert in my mind, like I can picture going into my ward and there are some ward members who, who all they want to do is have things be the way, the exact same lesson it was four years ago. They want to hash out those same ideas. Yeah. They want to talk about those same concepts. Yeah. And they're okay with like the manual telling us where we go on every one of these things and just being safe in that space. Yeah. And then you'll have other people in that ward who, when a question is asked, they want to be the one who raises their hand and offers the, they want to be the expert in the room. They want to be the guy who offers the clarification yeah. or the little deeper idea on a policy or it. And you can see it and again. I don't mean this as a negative. I'm not trying to pick on these people because we were all there at one time, but well, and still are. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. But you can sense like, and I'm, this is, comes off as I'm critical of a person. I'm not. I'm critical of a stage. It, it comes off sometimes kind of as an arrogant stage to be in. Like I've arrived. I have finally figured this out, and oh. I truly am the expert in the room. No, I, I I really agree. I think you're pointing to something real. Um, I certainly noticed the impulse in myself uh, in a Sunday school classroom. Although I'm never the one. I don't know beans about Mormonism compared to others, so that's <laughs> not where I shine. But um. I, I see that impulse in myself. Like I, and you know, and I'll invite the listeners here for a moment. Like, call up that feeling you get when everyone in the room is stumped. They have no idea like what the answer is, and you know exactly what the answer is. And you raise your hand and you're beaming and oh well, like let me let me illuminate you on this topic. And we all love to be the expert. We all have that so deeply in us. And yeah, we see that in Sunday school. <laughs> we see it everywhere. <laughs> so that's definitely that that is an expert tableau that you just kind of painted for us though like that that there's a right answer and i know it and let me tell you guys that's that's really the logic of the expert they they ask they probe they think through and they they deeply believe that okay this is what it is this is what's right this is what's true and you know of course at the at the later stages that that gets complicated Right, right. And as I'm thinking through that, like, it feels though still, like the expert, the expert still is flourishing that the answers are out there. It's just that they know them rather than maybe somebody else in the class. And I feel like as we start to talk about some of these later stages, there becomes, there's kind of enters the scene, this, this appreciation for the questions, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And yeah, you brought this up a moment ago. I wanted to pick it back up because it's, it's significant. If we just sit here talking about like the names of the stages and the features of the stages, it gets so boring and abstract and people's eyes water over. But when we talk about actual things happening in our community that reflect different like growth and maturity levels, that's really interesting. And what you just brought up, Bill, that you know, for a long time, we were in a place as a church, as a community where we had the manual and you are not to deviate from the manual. And if you've been to, if you've been going to Sunday school every day or every Sunday for five years, 10 years, 50 years, then you know the answers in the manual, right? Look at what's happened with preach my gospel. Look at the innovations in the Sunday school curriculum as of 2017. The whole spirit of presenting the gospel now, 
I would argue it's much more in the spirit of the stage that comes after expert, where it invites teachers to, you know, offer the material that you feel prompted to teach and entertain a discussion and let it be based in the scripture, but let people have their different opinions and ideas about it, right? The, the achiever is able to do this where the expert can't. The expert tends to be more rigid about like, this is what's true. This is where the buck stops. Uh, whereas the achiever, it's, they certainly don't abandon truth. They, the achiever still believes that yes, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. Either it's a raining outside or it's not raining outside. However, uh, there are going to be different perspectives on things and we're enriched to, you know, really discuss with one another these different takes we have on the so-called facts, right? So that, that comes up at the achiever level and it makes possible a much broader range of conversation about the gospel. I mean, the, the church published essays that are now on LDS.org about, uh, what would I call it? Uh, you know, the gospel topic essays on polygamy, on uh, uh, the priesthood ban, etc. That that could have never happened 10 years ago. And to me, it indicates a, a maturing in our community and a willingness to grapple with maybe more challenging points of view. Beautiful, beautiful. The the conversation moving from this expert to achiever and have you kind of talk about the achiever at a little more length. Um, expert tends to indicate to me this this sense of arriving in your mind, maybe more of like a knowledge base. And, and I don't know if that's intentional or not in integral theory, but when I look at the word achiever, I'm thinking of something that's more behavior oriented, that one is more aware of what they're doing rather than what they're thinking. Um, would you maybe just kind of walk us through the achiever in a little more depth and and help us see the contrast between that stage and the expert? You're quite right. I mean, that's an astute observation. The expert, uh, the focus is less on doing. And there's a reason for that. I'm, I'm going to stay light on the theory here because, you know, developmental theory, like all theories can get pretty dense and deep. But really the, the, on the simple side of it, the expert stage, it's this new, it's this brand new stage in adulthood proper. And we're kind of swimming in it. Think about a newborn baby that's just been born into this new body and these human senses. And they're just they're swimming in this sensory experience. Right. Well, later on at the expert stage, we kind of recapitulate that, uh, you know, we've been in our body long enough. OK, we've figured out how our limbs work and we can walk and, you know, we know when we need to go use the restroom. <laughs> right? We, we figure out the concrete human world. But then at the expert stage, we get into this subtle world of ideas, right, of, of subtle impressions, emotions. Uh, and it, we start to develop in a, a, a more subtle way in our adulthood. And, and we're kind of just swimming in it. Right. So the idea of expert is we don't really know what to do with all that yet. And if you're listening, you can recall the time in your life when you were an adolescent and you just had all these new ideas and all these raging emotions and all these attitudes and opinions about your parents and about school and about whatever. I mean, that that's that stage where things kind of explode. It just kind of goes off like a bomb and we don't know what to do with it. We're still kids, but we have a new perspective on things that we need to learn to manage. And when we move into Achiever, we're starting to get our legs, right? We're starting to get a sense of, okay, here's how this subtle 
adult world works and I can think about things rationally. I can reason through them. I can argue. I can get a sense. I can look inward. I can introspect and get a sense of what I care about, not what my parents care about, not what the culture tells me I should care about, but I can look at what I care about. And because I care about being charitable in the world, I am going to start a nonprofit that drills wells in Africa to get them drinking water. You know what I mean? Like we, we start to do stuff because we've developed proficiency in this new subtle world. The achiever stage is much more active and we call the achiever stage simply because people tend to uh, develop their own value system, their own personality, their own sense of here's what I'm going to do with my life. And they, they set goals and they tend to achieve them. Achievers are good at achieving goals, it turns out. Would you talk for a second, is there any data out there to suggest that that being part of a dogmatic institution or a rigid institution, I certainly realize that that, I think, actually is a catalyst for a group of these of, of humanity to to move into another stage, but can it also slow that that progress down? Can can a rigid institution actually stagnate growth? I think everything can potentially slow everything down, right? So so absolutely yes. So I wanna I wanna play nice here, Bill. And I also want to uh I want to complicate things a little bit. Um, the word you used, uh, dogma, I, I, and this is not a comment to you so much as a comment to the entire, I'll just say the whole Mormon world right now, that we tend to, for those who are, for those who chafe at dogma, let's say, we tend to have this idea that like Mormons invented dogma. <laughs> From a developmental perspective, dogma is just what like, cultural habit looks like from later stages of development, right? What I mean to say is that um, no matter where we're born on the planet, no matter what culture, what church or not church we're born into, we will go through a stage where we need, quote, dogma. We need someone to tell us the rules. We need someone to tell us, like, what this life is all about, what it means, what am I going to do with myself, and many of us at some point will outgrow whatever story we were born into, whatever dogma, whatever culture, whatever system we were born into will start to pop out of it and reflect on it and ask for ourselves, is this really what I want for me? So I bring that up, Bill, just to like really drive this point home because it's a critical one when we start to introduce development in the, in the Mormon conversation. And I, I really, I feel like a steward uh, in some ways of the conversation. I want it to bless the conversation and bless the community. I want their, I want it to leave people feeling happier and more compassionate rather than more judgmental and more alienated. And it's so important to understand that dogma, no matter what culture we're born into, we're always limited, right? It, it's just going to happen. It's, it's like a chick. It's a baby chick that strengthens its musculature through the hatching process. It's got to break free of that egg. And in the process of breaking free, it develops powerful enough muscles to survive its childhood. And we're all 
tasked with hatching out of a dogma and out of a particular worldview. So, yes, they can go too far. Of course, they can be unhealthy. We could do a whole show on how those things can be unhealthy. I My concern right now about the Mormon community is this impression, people who uh, feel like it's disturbed them, there's this impression like, oh, if it were just some other way, then I would have turned out a lot better. And I think there's a lot of room to have that conversation, but I also I feel like I need to offer this other perspective that that very limiting force that makes us so discontent that we struggle against so vehemently that actually blesses us with the opportunity to grow more. We're actually strengthening our developmental musculature in this hatching process. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, let me change the word a little bit. Maybe, maybe you can just throw back on me and say you're changing the <laughs> word, but you're still asking a, uh, a negative question. But on a high demand, a high demand religion, which I don't think is either good or bad. I, I think there that yeah. there are times in our life that that's really positive. There's times in our life maybe where that comes off as negative. But in the religions in the world that are high demand religions, is there anything unique about their impact on, on faith development or on growth, on just human development? Totally. No, that's an awesome question. And thank you, Bill, for indulging my rant there. You bore that very patiently and large-heartedly, as you do in no, life. No problem. Uh, yeah. No, I'm cool with the word dogma. I, I love how Terrell Gibbons uses the word dogma in wrestling the angel. <laughs> um, that's another conversation. Um, absolutely. This, let's call it a skill, whether we're parents, whether we're we have a leadership position, a mentorship position, and a culture. The ability to recognize when somebody is ready to hatch, so to speak, the ability to recognize when it's time to let go and let this little bird fly the nest, that is critical in any cultural context, right? So when we hold on too long, when we tell people, no, you cannot ask that question, and we've been doing that for a long time in Mormonism, and I think the leaders have really responded. Some would say too little, too late, and others are rejoicing that the conversation is happening. But there's a clear shift in leadership saying, look, if you have questions, we want to hear them, right? That is an example of uh, the maturation process where previously we said, no, don't ask that question. To, to, you, to, to your point, though, we were frustrating people's inclination. We were denying them that, you know, that right to keep growing and let go of a former worldview and stage of development. And now we're, we're recognizing a new kind of uh, developmental orientation to the gospel and saying, oh, if they have questions, let's really hear them out. Let's entertain them and have a, a faith-promoting discussion about it. Does that make sense? It does. It does, and it's beautiful. And I, and I totally agree with you. Some folks have asked, like, Bill, why... Why are certain members of our church who are just as, just as, um, just as much out there asking tough questions, why have some of them been severed from our tribe? And, and why, why are you able to kind of just keep going along and nobody seems to, to <laughs> be bothered by that, right? How and, do you do it, Bill Real? And, and the only secret I come up with, Thomas, <laughs> is that I'm, I'm further ahead time-wise than those folks. In other words, the church, I think, is, and to some extent, has yeah. learned that it needs to allow some level of dissent and right. and questioning, and allow these questions to just be out there 
in in the arena and and not to get so upset and riled up over every single one of them you have to go after somebody i love it no i mean absolutely bill i was actually i was uh out at cambridge with uh brene brown and a group of people who met at the harvard divinity school a few weeks ago and brene said it, to me, it was a visionary statement about how human collectives will start to work in the future. She said, if you can't disagree, you do not truly belong. <laughs> and that is the opposite of what we've been taught to believe. We've been taught to believe growing up, many of us, that if we disagree with the group we belong to, whether it's the family or the Mormon church, then we don't belong. We shouldn't disagree. We should agree. That's We, we belong to this church because we all agree on things. And Brene Brown was saying, if you're not allowed to disagree, if you're not allowed to voice your concern, you don't actually belong. And if you do belong, it's a it's a low quality kind of belonging compared to how much more deeply you could belong if your community trusted you to disagree. So it was a beautiful statement. And I I see the church and the world growing into that more mature framework. Um, some would say not fast enough, you know, and... I, I certainly hear that point of view. Um, my inclination is to start with what we have and uh, yeah, contribute how I can. And I know that's your, I know that's your bent as well, Bill. Yeah, and I'll tell you, if that's the future, that that the way to belong is to just like validate that we all have questions and we all disagree a little bit. Like, oh my goodness, sign me up for that. Yeah. So oh. I'm excited. Right? Um, yeah, let that yeah. be our battle cry. Thank you, Brene Brown. You got it. Love you. You got it. And, and Brene, just to bring her up, fascinating lady, I would love for listeners to just discover her and her her talks on shame and vulnerability. I'm I'm listening to an Audible book right now with her, and, and it ties into what you're saying. She gives this wonderful, like, six-part talk on vulnerability, mm-hmm. and she connects vulnerability to, like, if you really want to experience joy – then you have to be vulnerable. And right away, my mind goes to the Mormon scripture, right? That Adam was, or that, you know, that Adam was, that men might be and men are, they might have joy. Mm-hmm. If we really, as a, as a people, want to experience joy, we need to start being vulnerable with each other. I love it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it, you know, joy, the, the flip side of the coin to joy is sorrow. It's a paradox that we can't experience true joy without knowing true sorrow. And that's, that's arguably, that's maybe why Christ was known as a man of sorrows and, you know, bring in the Brene Brown and we can't experience true sorrow without being vulnerable to the depths of suffering in this world. And when we're vulnerable to the depths of suffering, we know the deepest kind of joy. I love it. Beautiful, beautiful. So the next two stages that you've got are the individualist stage Mm. and the strategist stage. Mm -hmm. I I feel like the way this conversation go, has gone, I, I need to at least give you a little bit of time to kind of at least talk briefly about each of those, but I don't want to spend a lot of time in them. Sure. Only because I feel like the, the folks kind of swimming in these issues mm-hmm. who, who we would call, if we would, if we would label them, we'd label them progressive Mormons. Uh-huh. They're going to kind of find themselves, I think, in these two stages for the most part. And, and so I don't want to speak a lot to where they're actually at. They're just, they're living it every day anyway. Mm. But I want you to at least give some voice maybe to those two stages before we jump into what I think is going to be incredible, uh, little conversation with you is on this next stage called the magician. <laughs> sure. but, I, but, 
which I think is kind of cool. I don't know if you're going to pull rabbits out of your hat on the podcast, or, <laughs> right. but at least give us kind of a, an inkling of the, the individualists and the strategist. Totally. Yeah, I'd be happy to. First, I'll say uh, the primary developmental struggle I see right now as a Mormon community, and it's an exciting one. I'm enlivened by the, the creative challenge of this, but I, I feel like we're really trying to incorporate the achiever stage in a really healthy way, right? And we could go into all the different examples of how that's happening. I already mentioned the, the way we're changing, uh, gospel learning, you know, we're changing the manuals and the way we present the gospel. Um, my experience is that many people struggling right now, they're probably, probably more of them are somewhere in the achiever stage than individualist. Many of them are in the individual stage, no question. But I, I just want to be a little more precise about that, that it, um, it's not just the individualist and strategist stages where, where I see a lot of people struggling um, or coming into a new relationship with the church. So I just wanted to, I wanted to offer that perspective. In terms of the individualist and strategist stages proper, um, individualist is, it's tricky because like maybe the one catch word for this stage is relativism. And, you know, there can be, there's like all things healthy and unhealthy forms of relativism. Uh, we can take, uh, the turn in the individual stage where everything's relative and there is no truth to what I would argue is maybe a more healthy orientation, which is, yes, everything's relative. We're all conditioned by different social, political, economic, blah, blah, blah contexts. So we have different perspectives on the truth, but there's truth. Truth still exists. We just are always looking at the truth through a certain lens. So that's the gist of individualist. It's challenging because um, you know, we've heard leaders in the church talk about how dangerous relativism is, which I would agree with. And if you recall the beginning of our conversation just now, Bill, it was starting out by saying one of the biggest pitfalls to development is talking about the negative attributes of a stage and failing to mention the positive attributes. So, yes, I would argue that one of the negative attributes, the potential pitfalls of individualist is we run into a rampant relativism and all morals are out the window and nothing's better than anything else. So let's do whatever the hell we want. And that can happen. Um, on the other hand, because individualists are sensitized to just how different human beings perspectives are, they tend to be very inclusive. Uh, you people listening, you probably all know somebody in the individualist range who just loves to hear about new ideas and meet people and hear their stories. Tell me your story. Tell me where you're from. Tell me how you came to be you, right? That luscious interpersonal territory is the domain of the individualist, right? So there, there are beautiful things about this stage. There are gifts that we are working to include in Mormon culture, include in the restoration, I would say. So that's five individualists. <laughs> yeah, and I want to follow up before you jump into the strategist, which this idea of like binary or dualistic thinking, it, it feels like by the time one has gotten to the individualist stage, that 
that is recognized as something that's changed, right? They've left to some extent, again, not completely because we all hold on to these things, but, um, but they've left, I should, maybe I should say it differently. They've, they've entered a place where they can now do a more nuanced thinking than just binary or dualistic. Can you maybe hit on from, from diplomat to expert to achiever to individualist, which stage does that um, way of processing the world, does it take the greatest shift? Ooh, that, that's a good question. Well, first I'll just say that you're absolutely right. That, that is a hallmark of individualist development that we, we kind of move past that either or mentality, like either you're right or I'm right. This is the truth or that's the truth. Let's hash it out. Let's, let's discover all the facts and find out once and for all, which is true. The individualist starts to deal with paradox, with ambiguity, with, oh, what if we're both right? What if both perspectives are revealing a facet of the truth and that we, we need both of them, right? That, that's where the individualist goes. Prior to achiever at the expert stage, as I mentioned, we're, we're generally not in a place where we even want to hear the other side of the argument. So we're not even at either or. We're at this is what's true. And if you don't realize that it's true, then you're crazy somehow. I mean, that, that tends to be more of the orientation at expert. And prior to expert, you know, a diplomat, we're not even really aware that we're taking a position on something. We're not generally aware that there's an option of taking a position or not. This is just what it is, right? So you see that progression moving along in the stages. It's, it's really, you know, mathematically elegant in some ways, like how our, how our thinking, our cognition, our moral reasoning, how it, how it becomes more and more complex and nuanced. And, and we're able to work with ambiguity and paradox in a satisfying way. We're not afraid of paradox. We're enlivened by it. When we come across the truth, someone else's truth, and we didn't realize it was true, we actually, in the words of Robert Keegan, we learn to recover our own complexity through other people's stories and perspectives. So we realize that we need other people and their truths, their perspectives to help us grow and to help make us more complete. Yeah. And, and it also feels too, and I, I, you know, again, agree or disagree. I'd love to hear your thoughts, but it feels like by the, by the time someone's hit the individualist stage, not that they left ethnocentricity, but they now are very aware of a world centric view where they can be more inclusive and, 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 you know, be comfortable with people who are different than them yeah. and not need everybody to fit into their tribe. Absolutely. And, and again, yeah, you hit it on the head. Um, an individualist for the first time, probably we're, we're less concerned than we've ever been about people's physical appearance, right? Um, and, and we're tuned into their subtle interior life, right? So, um, you know, imagine two people as different as can possibly be. I don't know, you know, like, uh, like a New York Jew and, uh, you know, a, a big towering six foot six Islander from Haiti, right? Physically different people of very different cultures. But if they're at the individual stage, they will be very curious about what makes the other tick and they will relish that encounter, right? So yeah, at the individual stage, we can really tune into uh, people's interiors and what they look like on the outside. It, it means a lot less to us. 
Whereas in the diplomat or expert stage, they're going to be very defensive yeah. and distance themselves from those dis- those differences. Diplomat, expert, even achiever, there's there's a pretty significant um, tie to concrete appearances in many ways. That that's for another conversation. But I mean, individualist is a bright line in development where really we not only don't care that people are different, we crave difference. That that would be the difference. Mm, that's good. Um, so now walk us for just a few minutes. What's the strategist look like? How is he different than the individualist? Yeah, strategist. Well, remember a moment ago I talked about how the expert is swimming in this new developmental terrain. And then in the achiever, they, they finally get their sea legs and they figure out, okay, this is how we do things here. Uh, the, the shift from individualist to strategist is similar in that the individualist is developing quite a lot of complexity at this point. Their ability to hold paradox, ambiguity, work with um, different relative truths. And it's challenging as an individualist to synthesize those truths, to step back from all of those different perspectives and to say, okay, all of these perspectives have their own truth to them, but this is how I will prioritize them. This truth is more important than that truth. And it, the strategist can really take multiple contexts, multiple uh, systems and start to organize them and engage them. That sounds really abstract. What is, uh, what's a classic example of a strategist working with systems? For example, a strategist for the first time starts to see development itself. They start to notice that different people have very different orientations to how they make meaning, what motivates them to act in life and gives them purpose. And the, the strategist can actually see, okay, like these are all really important, right? They, they, they can see clearly it's not just about this person's from China, that person's from Nigeria. It's not just about this person's a man, that person's a woman. They're, they're developmental traits that the strategist can start to see. And he can say, look, all humans are developing according to their own rhythm and we need to respect them. We, we, we need to really recognize them, honor them and hopefully set up institutions, communities, churches that really allow these different stages to flourish. That would be a classical example of a strategist concern. That's beautiful. And I want to throw this out because I think this ties in. If, if in the past stages there was a tension that just rubbed somebody the wrong way and it, it compelled them to be, to, to see that as either trauma or pain or frustrating or anger. And they distanced themselves from whatever those, those behaviors were. They, they said, I got to get away from this. Um, by the time one hits the strategist, it sounds like just by the name strategist, does this person now equipped to re-enter and re-engage those tensions and to, to find ways to like, be in the midst of that and not have it crush him again? Awesome question. Uh, short answer, yes. The, because the strategist is aware of developmental stage growth, this is the first stage where stage development is intuitive. You don't have to teach a strategist human development. They just get it. And that, that doesn't mean they can't learn from reading a book on adult development. You know, they can... They can deepen their knowledge of theory, but they get development in their bones now. And because of that, they, they're interested in growing. They're like, oh wow, there's the possibility of 
continuing on to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage. I want to keep growing and I want other people to keep growing. This is amazing. And to your point or to your question, Bill, uh, different features from different stages prior that used to drive us up the wall. Well, they still drive us up the wall, maybe, but the strategist is different in that they will tend to get curious about, huh, why does that drive me crazy? And they get into this territory. We call it shadow. It's that part of us that you we can't see in ourselves, but we know when it gets zinged. We know when, you know, somebody's uh, triggered us, activated us and they're, you know, they've stirred up some dark material material in us that needs some reworking. Right. Strategists love to find these places of practice generally and say, like, oh, I've found some shadow here. I got to work with it. Right. The tendency before the strategist stage on some level is to kind of blame the other. Say, like, this is their deal. Uh, the strategist for the first time is starting to be on the hook and saying, like, if I've got a big problem, if I can't love this person, there's something going on with me. Right. So there's a whole world in there. It's, yeah, it's quite a bit there. That's that's great, and and it feels like I know I've read as I've read about faith development and tried to kind of wrestle with all these ideas. There comes a point where folks they get to a place where they can re-enter the old tribe and use the same language that the diplomat or the expert would be comfortable with, even though those words may mean different things, uh-huh. even though, even though the, the way we would nuance it in our mind as we're going through a temple interview, for instance, even though my understanding of those questions may be completely different, I may have my own ground I'm holding on those questions, uh-huh. that, that I won't make the diplomat or the, the expert uncomfortable because they're going to hear what I'm saying and it's going to sound like I'm using the same language and I'm belonging, mm-hmm. but, but there is a difference. Whereas I feel like in these, in a, in a stage earlier, two stages earlier, you can kind of s- feel and hear that that person is, is not where you're at. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I, that, that, um, corresponds to my experience that, uh, and again, I, we're making generalizations here. A stage does not mean a person will act like this. The stages represent, a, let's say, a field of possibilities, right? To be in a certain stage of development means that there is a certain range of possibilities available to us. And at the strategist stage, you're pointing to one of the possibilities there, which is to say, okay, when they say that Jesus Christ atoned for my sins, they mean this. But I can actually say that in a way that's very meaningful for me. Right. In a way that I really care about. And I sense that I mean something different. And that's OK, because we're different people, you know, with different meanings in life. And, yeah, I've, I've met strategists. I've worked with strategists, Latter-day Saints, who do that beautifully. They they speak uh, Mormonese, let's call it, with a real fluency, a real agility and they bring their own depth to it. But people from other stages, their experience of them is that they're just very authentic, faithful Mormons, right? Which is, it's really encouraging to me that it, it just goes to show, you know, our, our basic premise that there, there needs to be room for every stage, every kind of human being in the gospel. I've seen that play out in really beautiful ways. 
Oh, it's so good. So good. I, so let's get to the state. Now, here's where we're beginning to enter territory that is so foreign to me. This was the absolute reason why I, I approached you and said, I got to get you back on the program <laughs> because, because I, I am aware of faith development. I'm aware of like others and myself. And, and so I'm not, again, I'm not trying to, this isn't an arrogant thing where I'm saying like, I'm a strategist, but I'm certainly seeing strategist behaviors in the way I think and in the way I act. But what I look at, I look at the, the stage, which, which integral theory has titled magician. Mm -hmm. And, and I think part of it's just the name, like it comes Mm -hmm. off as this, uh, unknown, uh, it's out there. I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, So tell me, what does the magician stage look like for those of us who feel like we're we're maybe dipping toes in the individualist and strategist stage, but we're just clueless to what lays as that next barrier or that next stage to kind of work into? What is the magician yeah. and what does he or she say, do, act like, and what is what is their church experience like? Yeah, totally. Well, you know, we haven't found enough of them to interview them and get a feel for what their experience was at church yet, but... That's all going to change soon, though. <laughs> um, yeah, th- this is this is a really interesting territory, the magician. Uh, let me start with the basics. Um, when we're born into this world as an infant, uh, we talked about this briefly earlier. That you know we're born into this new body, bloody and screaming, and <laughs> looking at all these bright lights. If we're born in a hospital and like thinking what on earth is going on in our own baby language. And we figure things out after a while. Like we, we kind of learn the ropes with a physical body. And then we move into this more subtle territory of development that we kind of classify as adulthood proper. And adulthood proper has less to do with being totally fixated on the physical body so much as being fixated on the thinking mind and the subtle emotional body. Right. And this is this corresponds to most of our experiences as adults that, you know, in a given moment where if somebody like taps us on the shoulder and says, what are you doing? We'll, we'll probably say something like, oh, I was thinking about this or I was going to do that. We were somewhere in our thinking mind. We were in our subtle territory or our subtle body, you might call it. The magician moves into a whole new medium is born into a whole new body, which is not a physical body, which is not the subtle body of thinking and feeling. The magician's primary body and identity is the body of pure awareness, right? Which is what uh, we sometimes use the term causal. Uh, it's really just a term for awareness. Terry O'Fallon is using the term these days. She's one of the head kind of developmental researchers in the world, she calls it the metaware stage, meaning aware of awareness. So as the magician, we are aware that we're aware. We are the awareness that is aware of the thinking mind, aware of the emotional body, aware of the physical body, and yet we are not reducible to any of those things. We are awareness itself. So let me stop there. I could just keep talking about the magician stage, but let me just point out that every person, this is an ordinary thing. It can sound really mystical and out there. And I really stress this at my workshops and in my mindfulness classes that right now, as you're listening, you can be aware that you're listening, right? 
And you can be aware of physical sensation in the body. You can be aware of the posture, whether you're standing or sitting. Then a thought comes to mind and you can be aware of that thought. And as these different experiences come and go, we're all capable of just noticing that the one thing that doesn't come and go is awareness itself. Awareness is always here. It's always the case. Right? So you can just taste that a little bit, that we're, we're aware. And this awareness is the foundation. It's the essence of what we actually are as luminous beings, as intelligences that are co-eternal with the divine. Right? So at Construct Aware, at Magician, this just comes into the fore of awareness, right? Magicians don't have to meditate for a week to realize this and say like, oh yeah, I am aware that I'm aware. Magicians are just aware of awareness. That That is the probably the single distinguishing feature of from the magician stage to the between the strategist stage and the magician stage. The strategist has an incredibly complex worldview and mind, the way they map, what they're cap- the way they're capable of engaging systems, internal systems of human development, external systems of human civilization. They're very complex and they're still identified with the body and the mind. The magician pushes back from that, floats above it, penetrates through it, however you want to say it, but they realize like, oh, all that stuff, all that stuff I've been doing my whole life, that's just, that's just body, mind stuff, and I'm actually spirit. And so this really incredible adventure begins at magician of, well, how can I integrate body, mind, and spirit? Right. So to me, I, I can't recall exactly where it comes up in scripture. I believe it's doctrine and covenants. Um, but uh, when it's when it's said that to God, everything is spiritual. There's nothing that's not spiritual. Or when, you know, Joseph Smith reveals that, um, you know, material is matter is spirit. Spirit is matter. I would say that that is a causal insight it's a it's the kind of insight that you would um, start to see from this altitude of development where you realize that you know from you know the potted plant on your desk to like the the empty glass of milk with you know scudge at the bottom of it dirty in the sink that these are all manifestations of spirit so the world begins to glow in a new way. It takes on a, in my own words, I would say, takes on a more holy quality and countenance to it. And that just becomes part of your normal moment to moment processing as you, you know, start to transition into uh, the mag- magician stage and later. Gotcha. I, as I've listened to folks that I feel and think are further ahead in faith development or, or in, you know, in this, these stages of development, I, to a T, every single one of them has mentioned meditation or mindfulness as part of the, their formula for arriving 
or working through these stages and arriving at these later stages. And mm-hmm. I just, I just want to put a plug in for you. I know you're a huge advocate for mindfulness <laughs> and, and I used to think like mindfulness and meditation were, you know, two words describing the same thing. And I've really come to understand that those are so different that meditation is one, one exercise, one practice mm. in practicing mindfulness. Um, I just, I just want to say thank you for, for introducing, I think Mormonism uh, being one of those voices out there that's introducing Mormons and Mormonism to mindfulness and to meditation, I think they're a key ingredient from all I can gather in moving into some of these later stages of development. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate it, Bill. Thank you. Um, uh, let me offer this uh, a free resource. Uh, about four months ago, uh, I started doing a mindfulness podcast on KSL, which is Mormon-owned. So if that's a plus for any of you listeners out there, <laughs> but um, the, the name of the podcast is Mindfulness Plus. That's not P-L-U-S, but plus with a plus sign. So Mindfulness Plus, you can get it on iTunes. It's free. And, you know, my intention of offering that is to help facilitate, help invite people in subtle ways into their own profound territory. Right. So if you're interested in, you know, kind of looking around and having some harmless fun, uh, check that out. <laughs> awesome. And I'm grateful that you mentioned that because it's, it's something that as I've been with you and, and you've helped me and others in the group to practice mindfulness in my, in my mind, as I've gone into these occasions with you, I, I felt like, okay, we're going to close our eyes and we're going to meditate for 40 minutes. And then we're going to all arrive at some really deep truth. We didn't know before. <laughs> right. And I think often that when, when folks come to these group settings and they're carrying all this pain and hurt they they're they're waiting on thomas mcconkey or any expert to to offer some really quick fix formula that just solves everything mm. and, and what i've learned is that i don't think quick fixes generally work anytime um but in this situation every time i think the group has walked away realizing that this that the work is what the work is what pushes us into this faith development mm. and and it's as you've taught this capacity to hold pain, to hold the trauma of our culture and to just make space for it and to honor it, but also to talk about it and, and try to find peace in it. Um, again, I just want to, again, I just want to say thank you so much for like how, how you've helped, I think Mormonism begin to just be authentic with itself and deal with the trauma that's out there. I, I really appreciate that bill. Um, you know, as you share that, uh, you know, Bill and I have, uh, been in a number of workshops together and, and you've seen Bill that really, I just, I invite people to get big, let's say, right? We all have a physical body. We all have a sinking mind, right? So the, the, the physical body, the more subtle body associated with thinking, feeling, but this body of awareness that we're not used to stretching out into, we all know how to do it. And when we do this in a community, and that this is what we do in these workshops, but we, we learn to relax, to release, to surrender into our greater identity of awareness. And every time we do that, we recognize just what you're pointing to, Bill, that we can actually, we're big enough to feel the pain and to hold the pain and to forgive the pain and release it. And um, to, to do this kind of developmental work, is to heal profoundly. It's to touch the deepest part of what we are as spirit 
And it's to develop that capacity to offer it to others, to invite other people to do that same thing. And I, I look at the, uh, the example in, in our church and the example in Christianity, Christ. And I, I know from my personal experience that no person can descend below all things and take on the sins of the world as just a physical body, as just a thinking mind. But as a body of pure spirit that has that is virtually infinite and without boundaries, that body is big enough to hold all of the world's pain and beyond. And we all have that body that we can exercise. We all have that identity and that God seed that we can grow into. And it's it's really my hope and my prayer and my passion that we do this work together. Who cares what we call it? We happen to be a bunch of Mormons in a Mormon community. Let's do it. Beautiful, beautiful. Let me ask this. So I go out to dinner last night. I, I meet, so I work as a, at a pawn shop with, of course, you know, Chris Bloxham, yeah, uh, the owner of the family pawn stores here in Southern Utah. That's a plug for you, Chris. I um, we love you, Chris. That's, that's right. That's, that's right. Chris Bloxham, sexy man. Um, I, I had some friends come into my shop where I manage out in Hurricane, Utah, and this couple walks in and they say, Bill Real, and, I, and they shake my hand and say, look, I've been listening to your podcast and we're such big fans. And so we get to talking and I said, look, let's go out to dinner tomorrow night. And, and they took me up on that invitation and we go out to dinner, which was just last night. And we're sitting out at a restaurant and we're talking. And, and here's what the husband and wife tell me, Thomas. And, and it's hard because when you can sense when people are in these early stages of faith crisis, mm. there is such – such hurt and aloneness, which you talked about at the beginning of our, our interview here, but such pain and not knowing what to do and not knowing who you can go to. And, and, and the husband and wife, they, they use this analogy. They said, it's like being at the beach and rather than being up on the sand where it's nice and safe and rather than being out in the deep waters where the, where the, there's not that much action as far as waves and things, it's kind of settled down to be to be somebody in faith crisis and to not want to leave, but you can't also go back to full on belief, you end up placing yourself right in that spot where the, where the waves roll over and just keep pounding on you and pounding on you. Yeah. And, and they both looked me in the eye and they said, this is tough. What do we do? I, I wanted to give you a moment because I don't think there's an easy answer, mm. but I wanted to give you a moment to at least speak to that tension that, that up on the beach where it's nice and peaceful and out in the waters where everything is simple and beautiful, yeah. that's, that's all good and dandy. But maybe speak for a moment about what it's meant to you in your life or maybe any advice you've got to, to, to just like roll your sleeves up and just live in that tension and what that does for development. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hear a, a beautiful answer within that question you're asking, Bill, I mean, what I hear you pointing to is that they're not to diminish anybody's suffering or make light of it, but that when we are able to receive experience, right, to really receive the life given to us to live, which is this life right now, when we're able to really take that in and work with it, we experience the waves, the tossing, the turning, the, the getting pummeled, even as a blessing, even as a grace and an invitation to grow. Uh, I really love, there's an American teacher, 
uh, with uh, from the Zen tradition, uh, Adyashanti, who he makes the distinction. I'm not sure if he coined this, but I learned it from him. He makes the distinction between grace and fierce grace. And we tend to think of grace as like, oh, you know, we're we've landed on a pillow of clouds and angels are serenading us and reassuring to us that we're we're holy and saved and, you know, pleasing to God. That's grace when we know that uh, he's pointing out that uh, fierce grace is just as graceful. Right. And it's when we're getting pulled apart and torn asunder and beat up and destroyed and it's hard to have the presence of mind in those moments to realize that it's the exact same grace that's working us. But I, I know in my experience that it is, that it's, it's actually the same grace. And there, there's a certain art to, you know, just let's go with the surf metaphor. You know, surfers who surf big waves, they'll say, man, when that thing dumps you, you go limp like a rag doll, you don't fight and you let it do its thing, right? That's a pretty good description of a mindfulness practice in life. When we're caught in the surf, when we're caught in the washing machine, there's a way to just receive it and let life do what it's doing uh, to to receive that grace, right? And and if we if we do that well, uh, what we become through that process is, you know, literally beyond what we can imagine from this moment. That's beautiful. I, one of the other things you've hit on several times that I've been, been around you, you've talked about the parent child relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, this has been a huge insight to allow me to sit in a classroom when something hurtful is said or something that is just blatantly runs counter to my very identity. And, and it's allowed me to just like sit with it. Um, it's this idea of the parent child relationship and, and those of us who were once children can now perhaps take on the role of parent. Would you, would you speak to that for a moment? Uh, sure. And, and feel free to steer me. Uh, and this, this comes from my own experience, you know, just, uh, being at church or not being at church as the case may be. I've spent a lot of years away from church as a lot of you guys know. Um, I noticed I had been gone from, I hadn't been attending Mormon church for close to 20 years. I noticed for the first, for a while, I don't know how long, six months, a year, I don't know how long, but I noticed not like right up front and center. It wasn't obvious to me. It took a while to figure out like, why am I so uncomfortable at church? (laughs) Like it was like this thorn in my side. I couldn't figure out why church is just, it's just this stupid building at the end of the street. Why can't I go there and sit there and be cool? And after really probing that question and saying like, what is it? I realized that like for me personally, this may or may not resonate, but I offer it because Bill teed it up. Um, I realized that I was going with the same mentality that I went with when I was a teenager, which is, you know, this should feed me. I should feel uplifted. I should feel spiritually nourished when I come here. And I'm not saying that's not true. I'm not saying that, you know, church or any spiritual community um, shouldn't feed us. But what I realized as I kind of worked with my own practice of, you know, reactivating as a Mormon was that on the flip side of that awareness was this possibility of what if I'm the food 
what if I am the spiritual nourishment here? And, and this uh, this isn't like uh, <laughs> maybe it was. I, I don't think it was a uh, this you know ego maniacal thought like I am the bread of life kind of thought it was that right. it was that we're all a part of this community and we're all like without each one of us there is no church there is no community so how can i actually like be the parent now I'm not looking to be parented i'm not looking to be suckered i'm actually i'm a steward i'm looking for people who need a hand up. I'm looking for people who need nourishment and I'm just going to be present with them. And if the spirit prompts me to show up in a certain way, I'll, I'll try to listen as best I know how. And that, that practice really transformed me. I found myself much less irritated by all the things that I wasn't getting out of the community and realizing just how, what a gift it was to have the opportunity to continue growing and to um, get to take care of people and serve people, right? I mean, the church is all about service. I'm not saying anything new, but I'm talking about personally how I made sense of that in my own kind of growing up. And I'm still making sense of it, and I still get irritable at church sometimes. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's beautiful. I, it, it struck a chord with me because I remember you looking at me and others in the room at one of these workshops, and you said, can you, you know, You've been the child. You've, you've got parents. Can you be the parent? Yeah. And it was one of these things I really took to heart because I can look back in my life and say, man, when I joined the church as a teenager who was, who was giving up lots of bad behaviors, the church truly was a refuge for me. And, and, and there's that scripture that says, you know, we're to, we're to strengthen the feeble knees and lift the hands that hang down. And it's one that means a lot to me because at one time in my life, it was my knees that were feeble and it was my hands that hung down. And, and so can we now get our nourishment at church? Can, can the spiritual experience for me and you be the fact that I'm now the one who's strengthening a feeble knee or I'm the one now who's grabbing someone's hand that's hanging down and lifting them up. And I, and I think once we can kind of just twist our mind to that, the, 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 the role of being the one who is giving solace can be just as much of a, a nourishment or spiritual experience as, as those past experiences we had where we received it. <laughs> Beautifully said, though, my experience is that it's even more nourishing, that it's actually it's a it's an opportunity for all of us to grow up in a new way. So I want to finish up. This is the last question. I think I want to leave the listeners with this kind of thought, because to me, this is something really intriguing that I've discovered as I've as I've you know spent some time with you and I go off and I say, okay, Thomas keeps talking about these certain people, Terry O'Fallon and Ken Wilber and Integral Theory and Brene Brown and, and all these names get kind of put out into the milieu and, and all I want to do is like, okay, I want to develop, so I need to start like hearing these voices and hearing what they have to say. Um, and so I go off and I listen to Ken Wilber. I've gone off and read and listened to things that Terry O'Fallon has done. Mm-hmm. I've gone off and, and read audiobook books again from, from Brene Brown and, and there's certain things that catch me and I want to, I want to, Finish off the podcast with one of them, which is that in Integral Theory, Ken Wilber shares the idea that in the middle stages of faith development, mm. there's a much higher likelihood for one to lose belief in God. And and for the sake of coming up with better terminology, they become atheists. Yeah. And he makes the comment that what 
what we don't understand in those middle stages, if we just, if we just find a way to hang on and, and somehow lean into those later stages of development, the, the, uh, you know, it, certainly by the time you get to the magician and certainly by the time you get to the ironist, which is the next stage after that, he says, he, he says that 90% of folks at, in those late stages, when asked if there's a God, uh, or if there's spirit, it's a resounding yes. Now, I grant that these folks will define that slightly differently or maybe even extremely differently, yeah. but there's an awareness that there's something bigger than us. Mm. And, and I just want to offer this kind of as a last question to hold out hope, to, to kind of offer hope for those who are close to or have thrown in the towel on God and spirit to, to let you kind of give us some parting words on, on what what happens that brings us back around? Again, these beliefs look completely different. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But that God and spirit begin to enter the conversation again. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate uh, ending on that note, Bill. Uh, if we back up a little bit, I, I talked a moment ago about you know that move into magician, into this new place of a really vast awareness, and we realize that you know this awareness in a really profound way is who we've always, it's what we've always been. It's what we always will be. And I, I really believe that's where the doctrine of co-eternal intelligence with God comes from. It's that insight that we really are eternal. Uh, as we develop this awareness, as we realize just how eternal we really are, we develop the capacity to see our beliefs. We witness our beliefs and do this again. This is not extraordinary. It's not otherworldly. <laughs> Magician makes a card disappear out of a card deck, pulls a rabbit out of a hat <laughs> kind of stuff. This is it's ordinary. Think back. If you're listening, think back 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you're that old. Think what you believed when you were 20 years old. Or think what you believed 20 years ago, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm 36 now. I was 16 years old. I go back, what did I believe when I was 16 years old? And, and wasn't that 16-year-old world in that moment, when I was 16 years old, wasn't that the only world there was? Wasn't that as real as real could be? And, and 10 years later, when I was 26 years old, I, I lived in a different country, I spoke a different language. I had a totally different orientation towards the world. You know, 10 years after that, where did those beliefs go? Like, I, I don't, I don't think the same way or believe all the things I did when I was 16. I've changed a lot since I was 26, right? And you do this exercise with yourself. You realize that these ideas we have, these beliefs we have, they, they come and go. Right. They come and go. But awareness doesn't come and go like in a very profound way. Awareness is what we are and we can explore what this awareness is, what the spirit is and how it creates and how it propagates joy and beauty. Right. And it's it's this open field for all of us to discover so I would say, you know, for people who feel distress, you know, about the, their current developmental dilemma, their conundrum, their predicament, that there's already a part of you that, that can just back up from that, that can back off. And 
witness yourself as a child decades ago, right? And you can see the way that beliefs have come and gone. But really, what you believe, what we believe is, it's not who we are. It's just a, it's a ripple across the surface of a personality, you know, that's made of, you know, gossamer. And this exploration, what Elder Oaks talked about back in 2000, the challenge to become, the gospel isn't about what we believe ultimately, it's about who we can become. And to me, the developmental framework, it's, it's a nice map. It's a nice kind of field guide to, you know, the, the different territories we can enter into. And I, I'll speak from my experience that there, there's a point in our development, if we're willing to go there, that we are less concerned about what we believe, what other believes, and we are absolutely enthralled. We become absolutely amazed and we marvel at just the reality of moment-to-moment spirit and creation unfolding. And to me, like, that's my Mormon story. That, that's why Mormonism's interesting to me, because it's a story about how we become that individually and always as a community, always as a Zion community. Beautiful, Thomas. I, uh, I want to give you one more chance to plug your, your podcast on mindfulness. Uh, give people the title again and tell people where they can find it. Yeah. Yeah, check out, it's called Mindfulness Plus with a plus sign. You can go to KSL News Radio or you can go to iTunes. It's free and it's a, it's a good little resource to uh, make some more space for yourself. Um, you know, do a little personal journeying in 2017. And, uh, I'll, I'll also throw out that, uh, you know, my next workshop, I'm, I'm teaming up with Gina Colvin in Salt Lake City, uh, February 17th through the 19th. Uh, that's another opportunity to just take a dive with us and do some exploring. You can see that on Facebook. Facebook, it's a, it's a workshop called No Going Back, right? <laughs> there you go. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I appreciate so much you being on. And again, just to plug your book too, obviously, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis. Um, what a great book, I think, for someone who's just kind of – starting to to sense that something's changing and to give them a framework to work within gorgeous stuff. You're just doing great work, Thomas. And I just appreciate being, uh, being in, in, in your circle and getting to see you from time to time and, and calling you a friend. I feel the same way, Bill. I love you and uh, really admire your work. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Awesome. Enjoy your day. And uh, again, appreciate all you do. Thank you. 